0: Grit is what allows you to have the source of will to create things as you see them versus as they are, despite the obstacles in front of you.
1: Hi, I'm Jubin, business development and go-to-market operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm really excited to bring you this episode of Go-to-Market Grit, a show that interviews amazingly successful sales and go-to-market leaders and explores how they operate, think, and deploy grit every day in order to build world-class teams and now on to this episode dan welcome to the show pleasure it's great to be here thanks for having me so i like to get these things kicked off by reading my guests backgrounds back to them so i'm going to go ahead and read your background to you and please fill in the blanks some of this is from linkedin others of which I had to infer from other sources to put the pieces together as best as I could. But ultimately, I'm sure I missed some things. Uh, You started with a BS in mathematics and statistics from John Hopkins. Then you went to become a research assistant at the Brookings Institution, spent a year doing that. Then you became the founder and CEO of a company called Collegiate Recruiting Technologies. You spent about two years doing that. What that business did was helping high school athletes get recruited by college athletic programs. Which I assume came from your affinity for sports and soccer and some of the other things that you did. Then, not assigned to LinkedIn, but you joined three startups in the span of 18 months. And I wanna talk about that. Then you went on to be a product marketing manager at Zembu for nine months. Then you went on to be the senior marketing manager at Paramark for seven months ish. And then you went to get your MBA at Harvard. I think your wife joined you for that. Mm -hmm. Girlfriend at the time, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, we, uh, we applied together before we were engaged, but then we, we joined together and got married on the week of graduation. And then you went on to be a manager at Bain, spent almost four years doing that, two of which was domestic, two of which was abroad currently or at the time. Then you kind of, you went on to LinkedIn, you had 12 years at LinkedIn. During that journey, you became an advisor at Dropbox, spent a couple of years doing that, an advisor at Springboard. You're currently a board member of Scoop Technologies. You've been doing that for three and a half years. And now we're on to LinkedIn. In 2008, you joined LinkedIn. You became the GM of the LinkedIn Research Network. You did that for about a year. Then you went on to become the Senior Director of Enterprise Sales in 2010. This was your first quota-carrying role, or I should say managing quota carriers. 2011, you went on to be the VP of North America Sales. 2012, you went to become the VP of Global Sales. You spent two and a half-ish years doing that. Then in 2014... You went into product. You grew into the VP of product. You started as an individual contributor in the product organization. In 2019, as of call it a year ago or so, maybe a little bit less, you were promoted to the chief business officer of LinkedIn. Congratulations. Dan, what did I miss?
0: <laughs> it sounds so easy when you read it that way. It's been quite a journey. It's It's been a delight. And there's so many moments along the way where you know you reflect on twists and turns and what you thought would happen or what you hoped would happen. But it's, uh, it's a delight and I love what I do.
1: So on the episode today, the thing that I think I briefly mentioned to you that I wanted to talk about that we're both pretty passionate about is the future of sales leadership and go-to-market leadership. There's a bunch of other things that I want to make sure that we touch on. But before I do, I think it's important to probably... Maybe spend a few minutes contextualizing your background for the audience, because I think it really informs the way that your perspective has been formed today. The first thing that caught my eye was three startups in eighteen months, and so I think if someone looks at your career, your resume, this meteoric rise at LinkedIn, you just think, to your point, it seems so easy. It's so linear, right? Chief Business Officer at LinkedIn. At the time, you had just sold your business. Tell me about how that go down and then your decision-making process and framework for going into a startup and then another one and then a third one. Just tell me more about that time.
0: Absolutely. Well, it really starts with my family. My family has had throughout its history, and this was a big tradition that I grew up hearing stories about entrepreneurs at all levels. My mom, my dad, my grandparents, there's a lot of entrepreneurial energy in, in the house. And I think from a very early age, I wondered whether I would be an entrepreneur too. And so when I went to college, I, I can remember the day. I remember the day as a math major looking up at the, or I think it might have even been a blackboard back when they used chalk and seeing all these equations and realizing that we were getting into a level of math that I was never going to use in my life. It just became very apparent to me. And I went through a process of wondering, well, what was I going to do? I was a sophomore at the time. And my dad came up with this great suggestion. Why don't you go and do something else outside of class to get your energy up and you continue with your studies, but you can focus on that too. And the internet was just coming around. It was 1998 and everyone was creating companies around the internet and having been a soccer player in high school, I wondered whether there was a way to build a marketplace for high school athletes and college coaches. And so this project is what became Collegiate Recruiting Technologies, I ran it for my last two years of college with a friend of mine who was much more technical. And it really solidified my belief that building things and being entrepreneurial in style, I don't think entrepreneurship is is all about starting things from scratch. It's about a style of thinking about the world. But that, that really suited me and that really got me excited. And so when I was about to graduate, I decided with my partner to sell the company And then decided to go and move from where I was going to school in Baltimore to California and join the startups that really knew what they were doing. And it was 2000 and the world went from the dot-com boom to the dot-com bust. And my next 18 months were three successive companies that had an idea, ran out of money, and it was hard. It was very hard. And ultimately, I I learned a lot and I never want to do it again. Going through that kind of turmoil back to back to back is really, really hard.
1: So, this is kind of a funny question, but would you view that time joining those three startups as successful? And the way that I define success in this context is like you personally being successful. And I'll contextualize that with my own story. Like, I started my career in a startup that failed by basically every measure, raised over $100 million and just didn't work in the way that we had expected it to. But personally, I feel like it was one of the largest successes that I have ever had. And I say that not in the context of the business being successful, but how much I learned, mainly what not to do, but also how much I learned about resilience and grit. I guess that's why I asked the question about, would you define those three startups as success in those 18 months for you?
0: Well, I surely learned a lot. And I think of any moment in my career and whether I'm being successful, if you will, is am I preparing myself to do great things in the future? And am I making an impact on things that I care about? And I don't feel like I made much of an impact at that time. I learned a tremendous amount about how to run a business, how to start a new idea, and what it takes to really go from zero to one. And I will carry that experience for the rest of my career. And I draw on that experience on a regular basis. So I think I learned a tremendous amount from going through it.
1: Let's fast forward. You go to Bain right? And I heard you talk about this before, but basically you felt like there was a a void in your resume on those 18 months where it was not failed startups that people had heard of, but just failed startups. And so you needed something that was ironclad on your resume that you could then springboard off of. So you went to Bain and I'm sorry, I'm putting words in your mouth because I have a limited amount of time and I really want to get to the substance of the conversation. And you spent four years at Bain. Then tell the audience, what was that process like? You're leaving Bain. What are you looking for? What's your decision-making framework and how did you ultimately land at LinkedIn? Yeah,
0: as you mentioned, Bain for me was a way to sort of solidify my experience coming out of business school. I really learned a lot in business school and I thought that being able to do that in a strategic context with companies would be really helpful and it was true. I not just learned a lot about strategy, but I got to travel the world with my wife at the time and that gave me a, a perspective. I lived in India, I lived in Australia for a while, And I I look back on those experiences as fundamental to who I am as a person. So I'm really thankful for that time. But it became very clear that that wasn't who I was as a person. I don't want to be the person that is thinking about what to do and suggesting what to do. I want to be the person that can make things happen, just the operator in me. And Bain wasn't offering that at the time. So I made a list of the companies in the Bay Area that met a set of criteria, a product I loved. It needed to be big enough to not be in the garage because I was still a little bit scarred from my startup days. I didn't want another one of those experiences, but small enough such that the company really hadn't figured out what it was or how its strategy would work. So kind of in that size. And I had a list of companies and LinkedIn was at the top of that list. And the reason it was is at Bain, I had learned that LinkedIn could be a tremendously powerful tool to research experts in different industries. Oftentimes I'd be given a case. I didn't understand a ton about the industry and I got to get up to speed very quickly. And I would find great people to talk to and they would share their wisdom about their experience. And that would make me a really effective consultant to my customers, or my clients. So by virtue of that power, LinkedIn was on the list and I went on the website. I couldn't find anyone to talk to me.
1: It's the- no, no warm leads into LinkedIn.
0: I couldn't network my way into the, the networking company. <laughs> And I found a job on the job board. And it wasn't even a job that was right for me. It was an analyst job. And I wrote a cover letter that said, this is not the right job for me, but will someone please call me back? And lo and behold, a couple days later, I got this email from who became my amazing world-class iconic manager for the better part of a decade. And Mike Gamson emailed me and said, I I saw your note, Like, let's have a
1: conversation. That's such a good story. So then... You joined LinkedIn, and in this capacity, you're not in a quota-carrying or sales role. What is the actual job that you're doing?
0: It was a startup business within LinkedIn. LinkedIn was a site for people to use and create profiles at the time, and the idea was we believed that perhaps we also could be a place to do market research. There was a very small group of people that were running this business, maybe it was three or four of us. And everything that was not selling was my responsibility to start customers would come to us and they'd say i want to run a survey to get the perspectives of restaurant owners in the midwest and i would go into the linkedin system i would figure out who that was i would program surveys i would email them those surveys i was doing the most operational of operational roles to get this thing off the ground and then over time as as often happens The company figured out that it had larger opportunities at hand. And my manager got promoted to take on some of those other roles. And as a result, I was given responsibility over the whole team, both the sales part of it, as well as the operations part of it.
1: And that was in, call it 2010 or so. About
0: 2008, 2009.
1: Okay. And then at the time, LinkedIn was doing what, like 40 million of revenue across the organization? Yeah, we're doing about 80. 80. Okay. So... We'll skip through this hockey stick trajectory that you had, but you basically take the business from call it 80 to a billion in revenue in four or so years. Is that right?
0: Yeah, I was given responsibility. We very quickly realized that recruiting was gonna be our first great business. And I was given responsibility over the sales team for the recruiting side. And we went from about $40 million, which was a portion of LinkedIn's overall business, to over a billion in four years. And it was, it was incredible. And it really is a sign of when you have a fantastic product and you build a great team and things start to build on each other and there's a snowball. And it was a, a fantastic uh, journey.
1: So speaking of Mike Gamson, who you mentioned was the one that reached out, he then was the one that got promoted, which then elevated you into the sales leadership role. He's now the CEO of Relativity, but previously he was the chief revenue or chief business officer at LinkedIn. So in preparation for this, I reached out to Mike. I reached out to a few other people as well. And I asked Mike, what are some zingers that I could ask Dan? And I asked so many people this question, by the way. I was looking for something negative somewhere along the way. I couldn't find it, by the way. So he said, we worked closely together for 10 years, and he has always made all the roles he inherited from me better than I worked them myself. He is exceptional. I followed up with that, and I said, Can you tell me about some times where he failed? And he's like, you're going to have to ask him. I can't really remember. And so anyway, I also reached out to Peter Kim, who is on, I think, your team as well. Now the VP of sales at Relativity. And he said, you have to ask Dan about him moving into a product role. So just to give a little bit of context here, you take the business to a billion dollars. Okay. Then in 2014, what happens
0: Very kind words from Mike and Peter. And they are exceptional in their own right. So, uh, But it's, it's nice to reminisce about those times. In about 2013 or 2014, the business was reaching these new heights. And I'd been in the role for a while, and I was still loving it. And I had a conversation with our CEO, Jeff Wiener. And we used to take these walks. And it was right by this place called Shoreline Amphitheater. And there was this path, and you'd go for walks. And it was These beautiful waterfowl would fly around and you'd have conversations about the business. And one day he just asked me, well, uh, you know, what do you want to do with yourself? And I said, well, one day I'd love to lead a great tech company. That would be an amazing journey for me and something I'd be really proud of, make an impact with. And he looked at me and he said, I'm not sure you're in the right role for that. And it was a shock. It was one of these moments where you think you're on the top of the world and you're doing so well and you're being told that you're doing well, but actually you're not on the path that you think you're on. And I took that at first a little angry, you know, when you're being told truth that you don't want to hear, but I reflected on it and I realized that he was right, that most great tech companies, they are based on great pop products or great technologies and the people that lead them best have a direct experience in those things. And even some of the more go-to-market focused CEOs that you might think of, deep down they have really strong product roots. And so I came to grips with the truth. I realized that he was right. And I went back to him a few months later and I said, okay, let's do it. He was, what do you you mean let's do it? Well, I wanna go into product. I'll figure out a way to transition the business to someone else and I will go into product. And I did a little research and realized that the only way to really learn how to build product is to build product. So I started at the bottom. I worked on a product with three engineers and a designer. But it was a great experience. And I got to cut my teeth and over time prove that I had skills at it and take on more and more within the product organization. And I wound up spending about five years in product leadership.
1: There's a long term orientation towards your career. And then there's what you did, which is absolutely stunning. And I think such a testament to your character. Imagine going from a billion dollar revenue company or leading it to a billion, having this quota, having a How many people were on your team at that point before you left?
0: Over a thousand.
1: Over a thousand people. And your CEO says to you, you know what? You want to be a really great leader. It's not this. What you're doing today, you're doing well. But if you really want to be great, which, by the way, as I look into Mike Gamson's background, he did a similar thing, if I'm not mistaken, on the product side as well. Did he not?
0: Earlier in his career, yeah.
1: Yeah. So Jeff says, you know what? You got to go to this product thing. And, And by the way... That doesn't mean you go lead a giant product team. That means you learn how to be a, an individual contributor product manager. When you heard that, you mentioned like your world was kind of flipped upside down. When you finally made the decision, what was the biggest hurdle in your mind that you had to get over? Was it your pride? Was it the notion of responsibility? Was it the notion of loving to lead people and having to let that go? What was the number one thing or the top things that were really hard for you to kind of get over before you finally did and made that decision?
0: Yeah, it was hard. And a lot of people at the time thought I was crazy, including myself for two out of seven days a week. <laughs> but deep down, it came down to a very simple thing, which is I think of my career as a stepping stone to more and more opportunity to, to do things that are interesting. And my friend, David Cohen, who works on our team, has this metaphor he uses of like, you know, you're building a pyramid as a professional. And sometimes you're building out and sometimes you're building up, but the base and height of your pyramid is what allows you to create value in different kinds of situations. And I just recognized that Jeff was right, that if I wanted to be the best version of a tech leader that I could be, that I needed this experience. And once that bit flipped, I was very clear that in my own mind that this is something that I wanted to do. Then the question is, well, I have a family. I have responsibilities. I have people that rely on me within the organization. I have a business to take care of. And it became a question of how do I get all of those things right? And one of the things that really sparked it and I think was helpful was a conversation with my partner, Mary. And we talked about what this would mean. And we talked about what plan B would look like. And we talked about how long I would do this before to see how it went. And if it didn't work out, what would happen? And I think working through all those details really helped me focus on doing a good job without being so nervous about all that. Other things.
1: You mentioned earlier entrepreneurial in style. That kind of stuck with me because... At Kleiner, we work with a bunch of early-stage entrepreneurs. And typically, entrepreneurism and early-stage companies are very tightly integrated, at least in my mind. Like, those are kind of one and the same. And you've been at LinkedIn for 12 years. When you say entrepreneurial in style, do you feel like you still get to scratch that itch, that creative spirit, that entrepreneurial spirit, even now today managing a giant business within what is Microsoft? Do you feel like you still get to keep that ethos? Absolutely. I think that actually I've learned that I enjoy scale
0: in a way that I didn't appreciate because it allows the surface area of the problems that we think of to be much larger. If you sort of ask me what I love to do, I love to look at hard, complex problems, make sense of them in my own mind, see a path forward and make things happen. And I think what's entrepreneurial about Many people that work at LinkedIn that are larger companies and also many startups is you see the world as it could be and you make it happen irrespective of the barriers to make progress. And that can happen in a small setting. It's a little easier to do because there's less history to deal with, but it can absolutely happen in a larger setting. And sometimes the impact you can have is larger in a larger setting because of the number of lives you can touch. We at LinkedIn, we help millions of people get jobs every year. We help millions of people learn skills every year. If we can figure out a way to make our business 30% better, that's a million people whose lives have been changed by virtue of solving a problem that existed in the world. So entrepreneurship to me is seeing the world as it could be and having the conviction to make it happen.
1: Really cool. Okay. So all of this has informed Dan, the leader today, right? And it was a twist and turn of a journey that is really unfairly, overly simplified in a two minute bio read by me. But all that being said, I think from the time that you started as a sales and go-to-market leader 12 years ago to today, the world has changed and maybe styles have to change in order to be what is an effective leader. I'd, I'd love to just leave that open-ended and, and start there and hear your thoughts.
0: Absolutely. And I think we could maybe approach it from the perspective of what does it take to be an effective salesperson? And then also what does it take to be an effective sales leader? Because I think that those are different things. In today's world, I don't think it's been hidden. I think there's been a lot of talk about it. Our buyers are in different situations for two reasons. The first is they have way more information than they used to have. And so think about when you go buy a product online as a consumer, you research it, you look it up, you make comparisons, you have a lot more information before you get in the conversation. And so the role of the salesperson is increasingly becoming as a problem solver and partner with your customer to help them move forward, which is very different than it was years ago. And I think that it puts more need on the skill set within the salesperson to understand the client's situation, to understand how they can add value to that situation and ultimately help that client make a great decision. The number one sales question I love asking any rep on any deal is if you were the client, what would you buy? If you can answer that question and the results of that question is, is our products and services then fantastic. But oftentimes. People will say, I don't know. I don't know what I would buy if I were them. And that means that you haven't really done your homework to play the role of a great salesperson in guiding the client through a process. I think from a sales leadership perspective, it goes even further because there are two new dynamics that are going on in sales. One is that most of the products we sell today, at least at LinkedIn, are either a subscription product or an auction product. You're buying ads and they run through an auction. And in those businesses... You earn the business of tomorrow every day. Whether or not your product creates value is what means whether you build a bigger business or your business deteriorates. And that's quite different than 10 or 20 years ago, where in technology, you'd show up, you'd sell a big package, and it was a one time event. And what happened after that event didn't really matter to the economics of your company. It matters a ton today. And so, sales leadership is really becoming more about value delivery than persuasion. So the art form of persuasion is important, but it's not as important as actually helping clients get value out of the things that they purchase. So I think that's a huge trend. And then the other trend that's going on is that the tech landscape around sales and sales tools is just blowing up. And I think we're going to find that like many other functions, future go-to-market leaders understand both selling and sales. And they understand all of the tools and technologies that can be leveraged by sales teams to build world-class organizations. And I think the balance is shifting from probably 90, 10 sales to foundational efforts to what will probably over time become more 50, 50. You know, Marketing was owned by the brand builders to so it's more of a balance between the, the brand experts and the, the MarTech
1: experts. So on the AE profile, has your perspective changed? And is the way that you look at hiring, interviewing, finding those people changed over these, call it last, 12 years as well?
0: It has. And I think that very luckily, I learned from Mike Gamson, who we talked about earlier, that we wanted to build a team of sales professionals that started with a value-based approach to working with clients. Our goal is to have our own culture and values and then manifest that in helping our customers. But I think there are a lot of companies where What do sales teams reward? They reward results and results alone, irrespective of whether the clients are getting helped and irrespective of what that means for people's teammates. I think it's just not working anymore because clients see value and they understand whether they're getting it or not. And also that selling is becoming more of a team sport. The number of collaboration points and connection points that are happening within sales teams these days means that you need to work well with others. And I'm not
1: sure that that was necessarily the history of many sales teams. That brings up an interesting point because I've always thought what makes the best rep often is the opposite of what makes the great leader. And mm. honestly, I'm just thinking about this now, but even when you talk about the way that a good sales rep has evolved, good looks very different than before. Good used to look like the lone wolf. Good used to look like the person that would bring Medusa's head to the table. Good used to look like someone that was you know, somewhat self-centered and that's what made them good. They were selfish with their time. Maybe what you're saying now, and not to put words in your mouth, but I'd love to hear your thought, is that that profile has evolved into good looks like a better teammate. Good looks like a solution seller. Good looks like putting yourself in the customer's shoes. Good starts to sound a lot more like a good manager. And I mean good in the terms of a good AE. That gap seems to maybe, in this new definition, have been abridged a little bit. Thoughts there?
0: I hadn't thought about it that way before, but it resonates. And maybe it's also just how I think about myself, which is I'm a problem solver at heart and I care about other people. And I think that when you bring a caring approach and you try to help someone solve a problem, they want to do business with you. And then when you get promoted to being a manager and you care about other people and you like to solve problems, then you solve problems with your team and your team loves working with you because they're doing a better job because of your support. And as you become a leader, now you're solving problems for the organization and your team feels the energy of care that you bring to that leadership role. So, I think in a very positive way, the byproduct of being a great salesperson and a great leader is the byproduct of being a strong human being, which is how do you treat others? And can you make things happen
1: when you want to make the world a better place? I think that alignment's really, really positive. To your point about data, I had a guest on and he talked about three pillars that sales leaders should really think about and that he's always oriented himself towards. The first is selling. As a sales leader, you need to be able to sell, right? Sell the product, whatever that might be. It's an easy way to gain respect. Most leaders can do that pretty well. The second is you need to be enthusiastic and recruit. You need to be able to recruit. And he says, again, most people can do the recruiting part pretty well, you know, within some degree of variation. The third is operations, and I say operations, and I think you could say data, tools, whatever that might be, that's typically where sales leaders are weak. They're just not as strong in that third pillar as they are in the first two, because the first two are typically what got them to where they are, not the third. So maybe using that orientation of operations and rigor, as a sales leader, is it, okay, I need these five tools. How do you actually think about being more rigorous about your operations, about your data, about your tools, and becoming a more effective leader from that perspective?
0: There's a lot in there. Let's start with the framework you started with. My dad used to say, show me the CEO of a company and I'll show you the number one problem the company's facing. And I think the same is true for sales leaders. There is a set of problems that a sales leader needs to deal with on the early days of a company. There are certain kinds of problems they'll deal with in hyper growth certain kinds of problems when certain product lines are in decline and you need to manage for profitability. And so I don't have a framework of what makes a great sales leader. I start with the problem the business is facing because ultimately what a sales leader is doing is it's harnessing the power of an organization through whatever challenges it's facing. And so I would encourage all the sales leaders out there to actually spend more time asking themselves what a great sales leader in this moment for my company looks like, as opposed to trying to think about, a generalized approach for what sales leadership should look like. I think those three things you mentioned are important, right? How can you you sell? Can you recruit? Can you operate? Those are important, but I think that there's a number of different ways to look at it. With respect to how I operate, there are two kinds of measures, and I know that a number of companies have adopted this. I think everyone should be able to measure inputs and outputs. The outputs are the things that you measure to know whether the results of the business are on track or not. And we have a very good organization at LinkedIn led by a number of different teams to make sure that we are heavily instrumented on the things that matter. That's bookings, that's churn, that's renewal rates, that's velocity of the demand funnel. It's also the value that customers get from our business. We treat customer value on the same level playing field as revenue when we think about whether the business is healthy or not. You show me a business that's growing on revenue but value is poor or the other way around, and that's an unsustainable business. The only way you know you're building a business for the future is when both of those things are happening, revenues growing and values growing. So we measure the number of hires our customers get, the number of leads that they get, and that tells us whether or not we're building success over time. But equally important to those output measures, which is what people traditionally talk about, are input measures. What's the cause and effect relationship between the things that you can do operationally and the outcomes that you want to achieve? So that might be more about activities, or that might be more about certain product activation levers that if the client turns on this integration point, it's going to light up a bunch of future benefit. It could be about the ability to measure how your team's feeling and whether or not they're engaged and they're excited. And so one of the conversations we often have is, do we understand cause and effect between the outcomes we want to drive and what drives them? And then do we measure both of those things?
1: And for me, that gives a really nice balance to track and measure the business. One of the things that you've talked about in the past is, and I think Satya Nadella either agrees with you, said it, and you agree with him. Nonetheless, you talk about leaders bring two things, clarity and energy. I heard that from him, to be clear. You heard that from him? Yeah. And maybe what you said was that it's always been someone that gets me excited. That's really powerful, not necessarily the tactics. Could you expand on that a little bit?
0: Well... I think we'd all say that we're in our best when we are given a exciting challenge to go achieve that makes an impact. And we have some space and some creative license to figure out how we're going to go do that. Now, I will say also, I appreciate when I don't know what I'm doing to be told what to do. And I ask for that when I feel like I'm in that space. But having some creative license to, to figure out how to solve the problems, for me, that's very energizing. And everyone's different, but for me, feeling like what I'm doing matters, not just in terms of revenue, but in terms of the values that I live by. I believe that economic opportunity is fundamental to people's happiness and well-being, and be able to provide for themselves and their families. That's why I'm here. That's why I'm so proud of my life's work at LinkedIn. But I feel like there's a certain kind of leader that knows what drives you and can bring some of that to the forefront and give you the space to operate. And I find that incredibly invigorating.
1: What do you think is number one skill that a leader could have in your mind?
0: Self-awareness. Because the more senior you get, two things happen. The feedback loops get weaker. So you hear less about how you're doing. And the second thing is that the organization in success takes on your weaknesses. So a really effective organization carries a lot of the traits of the leader it's what the leader rewards, it's what the leader sees. It has blind spots like that leader has blind spots. And so self-awareness is the only path through which a leader can both continue to be aware of how to get better, but also recognize the things that they're good at and not good at are gonna be shadowed throughout the organization in a very large way. So I think that it's one of the hardest things of being a leader is you don't know what you can't see, and it's hard to often see yourself clearly, but self-awareness
1: for me. Do you think self-awareness is innate or can be developed? And if the answer is developed, how?
0: It's learned. There's something very powerful about this framework that a gentleman named Fred Kaufman, you may have heard of Fred Kaufman. He's written a couple books, one called Conscious Business, about the idea of a victim versus a player. People living their lives as a victim versus a player. And The victim thinks about things that are being done to them. And a player thinks about the things that are in its control and and how to make things happen. And I try to live in the player state, I think, like many people do. But once you're in a player mentality, you realize that the thing that's getting in the way of what you would like to achieve for yourself or for others is yourself. And so once you get to that place and you want to get better because you realize the power of getting better or doing better then you realize you need to be able to see yourself clearly. So I think it starts with just a mentality. And it also starts by surrounding yourself by a number of people that you trust who are going to give you the real deal. And I am very fortunate to have a number of people that don't mince words in any
1: way, shape or form about how I'm doing and how I can do better. And I cherish that feedback. I love that. Couldn't agree with you more. For the the remainder of the time, I have read and heard most pieces of audio and literature that you have put out and one of the things that i was frustrated by was that you would say things that were so insightful and i didn't have the opportunity to dig in to what you were saying and really understand that insight more so i'm just going to pull out some danisms here and i've organized them into three topics if you will the first is talent the second is culture and the third is designing for the long term And I oriented it in this way just because I think they're really important themes. I think they're themes that you talk about very well, and I think they're broadly applicable. So I'll start with talent. You say talent is the competitive advantage in most companies. Talent is the competitive advantage. Tell me more about that.
0: I've had the fortune of working in LinkedIn's talent businesses for the last decade, helping companies hire, helping companies learn. And one of the things you realize is that there's been a massive shift in how companies work over the past 100 years. 100 years ago, you had factories, railroads, situations where we had a small number of people at the top that were overseeing huge workforces and huge resources. And the way those companies won was capital allocation or deciding where to build a factory or in various operations of running the business, but most of the decisions were at the top. And then you fast forward today and basically what you see is that the companies that are in the most profitable segments that tend to lead their markets are the ones where they have much more of a democratic and team oriented culture where most of the organization has to work together to make things happen. That both makes them more limber, but also it allows them to adapt to the market in much more effective ways. And so then the question is well, what makes those companies great? And it comes down to the people there and how they will come together much more than the assets you own or a top down organizational structure that maybe made sense a century ago and i think that's going to continue i think you're going to see more and more companies think of even not talent as an individual but talent as the team it is the team that makes things happen not the person that makes things happen it's a big reason why we're so excited about the product that we purchased called glint that helps companies think about how teams are functioning but the game we're playing you know the future is a team sport and If you've read Sapiens or some of the books about the coming of mankind and humankind, you realize that humankind is a history of people learning to work together in bigger and better ways to solve larger and larger problems. And I think that trend is just going to continue.
1: This was really cool. You talked about forecasting under the umbrella of talent. So you said forecasting is a good starting point for a discussion of, do you know what is going on as a rep, as a manager? The outcome is clarity to management of if you know what's going on. The number that you actually say is significant, but not actually what I'm looking at. What I'm looking at is a way to assess people. Tell me more.
0: When I first came into sales management, I couldn't get why we were meeting every week to give a fork. Like I told you last week, it's a little different this week, but it's not that different. And I struggled with this. And then I quickly realized that There is a real value in knowing how the business is doing. But the real question is, are you deep? Are you in it all the way? You know the things that you should be knowing. If things are fearing left or fearing right, do you know enough to be able to manage what's happening and improve it? And for me, we need to know how the business is trending, but we also need to have a mechanism to know whether our people are deep enough. And this is where LinkedIn has just a fantastic culture of deep leadership that really gets their hands dirty in what's going on. And then being able to translate that into actions. That was a big lesson for me. And I think early on, I was a little bit like, do I really need to come to this every week? <laughs> but I learned my lesson.
1: Well, that's a hell of a way to make sure people forecast well. <laughs> Compensation. Again, this is all talent. This is the way Jubin's bucketed talent. Compensation is not how culture is formed. The way to earning for yourself and your family in the wrong run is getting promoted. To do that, you have to be a team player, the complete package. And you said this in the context of short-term focus, where typically AEs will be really focused in the near-term W-2 comp plans this quarter, this year. Whereas you're saying, and I guess I could have put this in the long-term category as well, the way to actually earn wealth is by getting promoted. And I'll just let you talk about it.
0: Yeah, I'll bring you into a few things. The first is that I have a very firm belief that how good you are at your job is the greatest thing that can create opportunity for you over time. And I don't think people believe that enough because what that means is that learning and performing and building trust in others is what sets you up for the future. And if you can do a lot more, then you can be put in roles and it tends to play out that the more responsibility you get, the better you get paid. So the question is, how do I prepare myself to have and thrive with more responsibility? Now, one of the things that trips people up and I was very surprised by this when I came into sales, is that oftentimes there will be a moment where people understand the difference between what's best for their comp plan and what's best for the company or the people around them. And they think that by virtue of it being in their comp plan, that that's really what's right to do. They don't recognize that no comp plan is perfect, but your brand as a person within that organization is defined by how you make these choices often. And so we'd have people that would blow up their numbers but they wouldn't necessarily be helpful to their teammates in times of need. They wouldn't necessarily make the right trade-offs for the customer. Those are the people I want in leadership. Those are the people that I would trust to make decisions of higher and higher altitude. And so if you wanna earn another five points on your comp plan, that's within your right. But if you wanna build towards your future, then I would encourage you to imagine that every one of those trade-offs you're making is being part of your promotion discussion. And oftentimes the most interesting discussions during promotions is, did the person make the right call when no one was looking?
1: And what about when someone says, look, the top rep at the company makes more than the leader, the top AE who's blowing out their number year after year is consistently earning more in terms of their paycheck. Now, maybe equity is a different conversation. Do you agree with that? Disagree with that? I don't believe that our future is one where the
0: top performing ICs earn more than leadership. Fair enough. It happens. And by the way, we have ICs in LinkedIn who are absolutely exceptional and they earn well. And the reason they get those best assignments is because they sell and they treat their teams well, they know how to collaborate, and they live our culture and values. So one of the things that I firmly believe is you don't promote someone based on results, you promote someone based on the value they have to the organization. Mm. Part of that's their number. Part of that's a bunch of other things that matter a lot at LinkedIn.
1: And then the last one on talent, people that learn the fastest tend to get the best jobs. Yeah, it comes
0: back to this point that if you can make yourself as good as you possibly can be, then those are going to be the things that are going to get you those opportunities in the future. And one of the things I've learned is that that's not as true as I thought, because the world's not as much of a level playing field as I would hope in my mind that it is. And I think there are a lot of people that are incredibly capable that aren't given those opportunities. But if you think about the things you can control on a daily basis, that the faster you learn, the better you get. That's what leads to progress.
1: Yeah. Okay. Number two, culture. Culture gets defined in who do you hire, who do you fire, and who do you let go?
0: I think the third one's probably celebrate.
1: But yeah, most people come to work wanting to do well.
0: They just want to do well. They want to contribute. They want to be appreciated for their contribution. And I think that leaders don't recognize that every time you tell a story about someone doing a great job, every time you give someone a promotion, every time someone gets a plum responsibility that allows them to be more visible and gain more experience, you are sending a signal to the organization that that person is someone to be celebrated. And that those are the kinds of people that we value here at the company. So at LinkedIn, one of the practices that we started doing whenever we would send an announcement out around a big deal is a lot of companies would say the big thing that they would talk about is the size of the deal, right? $2 million deal and the growth rate and all of the different pieces of the commercial. We would downplay that. We would talk about It's really wonderful that so-and-so closed a $2 million deal. But the thing we want to highlight about it was the fact that the collaboration that they had with this other team was exemplary. We want to highlight that these three other people that weren't part of that deal team contributed even though it was Joe's patch. Those are the things we want to call out because those are the intangibles that make our culture something that we really care about. So I feel like in the storytelling, you get so much richness of what a company cares about. And then hiring and letting people go is probably the most pivotal moments where you really define what you value as an organization. Mm. And there's a great story about Mike Gimpson Again, we come back to him, but a lot of my experience I learned from him, where we had at one point a sales leader that was doing great at a very hard time where most of the teams weren't doing great, but the team was miserable. And Mike decided to let that person go despite a lot of advice. And his answer was, I can't lead a team where people aren't happy coming into work. And so even if this is going to be a moment where it's going to be painful, we're going to take that pain because this isn't who we are.
1: And I think that those kinds of decisions set the tone for a really, really strong culture at LinkedIn. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, last point on culture. One of the easiest ways to assess a salesperson is to do a sales call, like a mock sales call. The mock moment will tell you about 60% about that person and the remaining 40% will tell you about the culture.
0: Yeah. You want to test anyone about whether they can do a job, give them the job to do. Whether you want to test an analyst, give them an analytical problem. You want to test an engineer, show them your code. Now, it doesn't show you what people's potential is. And I think that over time, I've learned that potential, that many people that can do a job can't do it on day one. And so you need to be really careful about that. But you know, one of the things that you learn in sales calls doing them in interviews is two things. One is preparation. There is a very wide range of preparation of people coming into mock sales calls. Some people really do their homework and understand what a company is about and what it's going through. And other people really come in and wing it and do their best without really being prepared. And I think that that's a big difference between effective salespeople. The second thing is that one of the hard things of being a salesperson is you have to be good at talking and listening at the same time. And a lot of the mock calls that I've done you know, the person comes in and just starts spitting what they think is the greatest persuasive argument they can come up with about their product, but doesn't take a moment to figure out what I care about or what situation I'm in and doesn't respond to the cues that I'm giving off that you'd want to probe deeper in.
1: And I think you can learn a lot about someone's comfort with listening and their
0: skill at listening in that long call.
1: Designing for the long term. A lot of people think You switch within the same kind of you're a sales rep here and then you become a sales leader here. And then I think what you're saying is, no, you're a sales leader here and then you're a product manager here. Is that what you meant by that quote? Yeah. The best
0: career decisions have an end point in mind. And if you know what you want to do over time and you have a point of view of how to do that job well, then you can build a career around it. Now, if you're a person that can be multidisciplinary to realize that the best way to be a revenue leader is probably to understand a bit about marketing. The best way to be a product leader is to know a little bit about AI. And I actually like to think of it as majors and minors, that as a professional, it's helpful to think about yourself in terms of the things that I want to be world-class in. And then the other thing that I want to know well, such that I can be a great team player at my company and I can connect dots. Because as we talked about earlier, Business is becoming more and more of a team sport and leadership is more and more about connecting dots across the organization. So if one of the roles that you aspire towards benefits from a multidisciplinary experience, then I think if you have those experiences, you will be better positioned than many other people at those.
1: You gave a quote that was right at the transitionary period of you going into the individual contributor product role. And... You said, my hope is that however my personal career path evolves, being able to speak in both worlds will be useful. And at the time, you genuinely had no idea. Do you think that's manifested to be true today?
0: Absolutely. And it comes down to how fast business moves these days and how org charts are not really how companies run. You know, in most companies, you've got a sales team and a marketing team and a product team, and engineering team. But then on a project, which is really what moves things forward, you've got everyone at the table. And the companies that are going to do well are the companies that build great disciplines around the functions that matter, great sales execution, great marketing leadership, great product sensibility. You got to be great at those things. But the other thing is you need to build a time together in real time at the project level. And so the companies that have people that have experienced multiple of those things are going to be able to help those teams make progress faster. And I feel like part of what's helped me get to where I am is that I'm able to harness cross-functionally the power of the team and then communicate that upward in the organization to get support and resources in a more frictionless way than people that have a singular discipline as their background. Because I can speak the language of multiple teams. And so I can go talk AI with the AI engineers. And actually, I really enjoy it as a math major. And then I can go into the sales room and talk about deal strategy. And I think that being able to do both of those things allows the organization to support the things that I'm a part of.
1: It's a great place for us to leave it. I always ask the same final closing questions. The first, what does the word grit mean to you and how do you or your teams apply it?
0: I think it comes back to what we talked about in entrepreneurship, where grit is what allows you to have the source of will to create things as you see them versus as they are, despite the obstacles in front of you. And Steve Jobs, I think I was watching a video of him recently where he talked about the fact that these things, these mountains that we try to move as people in our professional lives, they're hard and they're tall. And the reason that some people climb them is often that they just kept going versus the fact that they were better climbers. And so I think that grit continues to be one of the things that we look for. And honestly, as a parent, it's one of the things that I'm most hopeful that my kids find in themselves because I think it is one of the sources of
1: happiness in life. Great answer. If someone wants to get a hold of you, wants to come work at LinkedIn, wants to get in touch, what's the best way to do so? Are you hiring? Find me on LinkedIn, send me a note. Dan, thank you for your time.
0: My pleasure, it was great to be here. Thank you so much. Take care.
1: Thank you folks for tuning in to learn from our amazing guest and for indulging me as the rambling host. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you'd like to get in touch or keep up with the pod, Please follow me on Twitter, at Jubin Mir, or shoot us an email, gtmg at KleinerPerkins.com. If you liked what you heard and want to hear more, please support the show by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. Thank you, and I will see you next time.